I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about something that's probably impossible to get to the truth of the matter about, we're on day six of the Israeli war against Hamas. We have with us Dr. John Alterman, the person who I turn to the most when it comes to the Middle East. John is our Middle East program director. He is our Brzezinski chair and a senior vice president at CSIS. John, thanks so much for being here today on the podcast. Always good to see you, Andrew. So, John, there's a lot of assumptions about what's going to happen in the next days and weeks ahead. What are your thoughts? The assumption is that Israel is about to make a, a, a ground invasion of Gaza. I think the assumption is this will take several weeks. Israel will control the territory. I think there's an assumption that Hezbollah can be dissuaded from engaging. There's an assumption that the West Bank will stay quiet. There's an assumption that this is going to remain an Israel-Hamas war. I'm not sure it's going to remain an Israel-Hamas war. I'm not sure that Israel isn't going to encounter problems in Gaza that it doesn't anticipate because one of the lessons we need to have learned from last Saturday is Hamas has capabilities that people hadn't assumed that Hamas had. I think there's an assumption that people have that that you're going to be able to pacify Gaza in some way, that, that the logic of force is going to persuade Gazans to just stop. I'm not totally confident that's true either. And it, it does feel to me, you know, Israel, because it suffered such atrocities on Saturday, unspeakable atrocities. Unspeakable. That, that the country has come together and there is this, I think the most important assumption is that, you know, Israelis will stop all the foolishness and they'll put their minds to it and they will fix this. I'm not sure that the tools the Israelis have in mind, that the tools the Israelis have at hand, that the problem that they're setting out to deal with this week, I'm not sure it lends itself to even the most national cohesion, the most national resolve. This could go sideways for a lot of people. And I think, to me, one of the things we have to do is just recall our humility about predicting what happens once you go to war, predicting what happens against enemies, adversaries who have had more than a decade to plan all sorts of surprises. Israel has some new technology that I'm sure they'll be using. My understanding is some of the, the, the people are using AI for drones inside buildings, and you can do all sorts of sensor things. I get that too. But I just worry that we're going to be in a very, very murky situation in Israel more broadly, and it's going to be even murkier. And this is a subject you know about. The information space is going to be incredibly disordered. It will be full of disinformation. The social media platforms doing much less content moderation. Social media platforms in general privilege images that, that are emotionally arousing. 
And I just worry that, that all of this is going to mean that we are in a profoundly disorienting conflict in the next several weeks where emotions will be high on all sides. There'll be a tremendous amount of death and people will be looking at images of mutilated bodies day after day after day. And what impact is that going to have on the conflict, importantly on the resolution of the conflict? Because one thing that the United States learned in Iraq and Afghanistan, the army can do all sorts of impressive things and build up all sorts of impressive metrics. What matters is what kind of political outcome can you lead to? I'm not sure the Israelis are thinking deeply about that. I think there are some opportunities to be happy to discuss them. But ultimately, this is not going to be won on the battlefield. It's going to be won after the battlefield has gone silent. And I think one of the things that, that all of us have to do is to begin now thinking about, so where are we actually trying to go and make sure that we don't keep ourselves from getting to where we need to go? You know, I think a lot of people are worried that the battlefield part of this isn't going to end anytime soon. What do you think? I mean, you mentioned that we can't assume that Hezbollah is going to stay out of it, that the West Bank will stay quiet. And you also mentioned that there could be some really severe problems for Israeli forces in Gaza. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, Hezbollah is calculating. I think has, my assessment, strong assessment, is Hezbollah didn't know this was coming. I think if Hezbollah knew it was coming, then the Mossad and the Shin Bet would have known it was coming. So I don't think they knew it was coming. I'm not sure they're, they were prepared for it. I suspect they were very unprepared for it. I think their instinct will be to do a lot of station identification, to remind people they're there, to, to say our contribution is we're diverting the Israelis up north, but we're not going to unleash the 100 to 150,000 rockets and missiles we have. We're not going to have Israeli forces bomb southern Lebanon into oblivion, destroy Lebanese infrastructure. I mean, this has happened. As they did in 2006. This has happened before, and Lebanon now has gone from being a middle-income country to a country where 80 to 85% of the population is under the poverty line. If they begin a war with Israel now, it's possible they could lose a lot of their support in Lebanon. So my instinct, and it could be wrong, and I'll, I'll freely admit it could be wrong, my instinct is they don't want to, to be in the direct Israeli fire, but they'd like the Israelis to stay worried about them. If that's what happens, that's okay. But I'm not totally confident that's going to happen. The West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas, is uh, 14 years, I think, after the expiry of his term. He is profoundly unpopular. Palestinian Authority doesn't really have legitimacy or control over many things. It is quite possible that in response to images coming out of Gaza and in response to provocative actions by Israeli settlers in the West Bank, that things in the West Bank spin out of control. And that could well happen. If it turns out that there's a direct Iranian hand in some of this, I could imagine Iran getting sucked in. So this could, this could go in a lot of different ways. Our public opinion is I think, going to be very sympathetic to Palestinian civilians. 
uh, how much that will constrain governments. I'm not really sure. On the governmental level, all of the Arab governments, with the possible exclusion of, of Syria, really strategically see the world the way the Israelis do. They say militant Islamist political movements are bad. Iranian proxies are bad. So they see eye to eye with the Israelis. Yeah. But they're not on board with the Israelis killing potentially thousands of Palestinian civilians. And I think the Israelis are going to have a real challenge how they prosecute a war in an age of social media where there are a lot of people who are pretty oriented toward having a sympathetic view to the 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 Israelis' adversaries. Um, and that's you know, and that's a problem. Israel has its own very effective public diplomacy effort, but I think maintaining a narrative in this war is going to be even harder than it's been in the past. You know, it used to be there were a finite number of news organizations. They all had editorial policies. Uh, Twitter has no editorial policy. TikTok doesn't have an editorial policy that I'm worried. Some of the news organizations don't have an editorial policy. So we're in a whole different world and, and you know, in a world where, where, where so many people have cell phones and create images and there's an instinct, an incentive to create images. And you have people who, who may be using tactics of dis disinformation. You certainly have the example of ISIS using social media in the last decade. So I think it's a, I think the information space for this war is another uncertainty, which could lead to a very, very different kind of war and a very, very different kind of outcome than people are planning on. John, you mentioned some of the problems that Israel might have going into Gaza. Can you elaborate on that? Or is it that there's booby traps, IEDs, what else are they? All of the above. I mean, the the, you know, the the geography of Gaza is it's an urban environment with lots of buildings, staircases, alleyways, streets that aren't straight that you can't move tanks down. I, I still remember going into Hama in Syria and the road into Hama where there was an uprising against Hafez al-Assad uh, in the 80s. And the road into Hama is a straight road that had half destroyed buildings on either side. And I asked the driver, I said, well, they needed to straighten the road so you get the tanks in. So they just plowed through winding roads in neighborhoods and made straight lines to the center of Hama. It's hard to get heavy equipment into a lot of neighborhoods. I assume there are booby traps, cameras, IEDs, hidden, and it's hidden everywhere. I mean, as we know from Iraq, you can have booby traps inside dolls. I mean, everything is, is a potential uh, this hazard. Is like, this is like the U.S. experience in Fallujah. It's, look, so one of the differences is the Israelis have thought about this as a target for decades. So they're not, they're not trying to make it up as they go along in the same way as U.S. did in Fallujah. But the number of potentially hidden deadly risks is huge. And, you know, the alternative is you just bomb things from the air, which leads to 
large numbers of civilian casualties. And Israel traditionally is, is sensitive to Israeli military casualties. So how they decide to prosecute this war is, it's a profoundly difficult military task. I'm not sure there's been a harder one, to be honest. Hamas is very inventive. They have been planning this, planning against the potential for an Israeli invasion, arguably for 15 years. And this may be about the most difficult military task anybody's ever faced. Anybody's ever faced. It might be. It might be. It's, it's again, if, if you don't, you can certainly completely flatten the place. But Israel can't do that and, and maintain any international standing. And so what the balance is going to be, I don't know. But it's, it's a remarkably difficult set of tasks. So let's talk about that for a minute. Right now, public opinion, world opinion seems to be on the side of Israel. The atrocities on Saturday were unspeakable, as you said at the beginning of this podcast. And the images that are coming out on a daily basis from, you know, all over, grandmothers being kidnapped, children being kidnapped, and and, and worse. But as you said, as Israel starts to prosecute its campaign against Hamas, it's really difficult. And there's been bombings so far. There's also reports of a lot of casualties, civilian casualties in Gaza, buildings being flattened. And you hear rhetoric on the Israeli side where they say, you know, things like there's going to be a new reality and some saying we are going to flatten the place. I'm not sure they're going to do that. I don't think you're sure they're going to do that. But what how long does Israel have before public opinion starts to turn against them? I mean, that's the $64,000 question, but it seems to me, you know, as you're talking about the images from last Saturday, the news business is about new things. And when you have images coming out daily, 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 the images that came out two weeks ago, three weeks ago, are not news anymore. It's the new images. And the balance will shift from 250 kids at a concert to something very different. And the power of that is, is I think, going to diminish in the international community for Israelis who knew kids who were killed. For, for You know, I mean, Israel, I've been told that in Israel, everybody's about one degree of separation away from somebody who was killed or kidnapped for sure on Saturday. But for the rest of the world, it becomes distant. And what becomes urgent and present is what happened today, what happened yesterday, not what happened several weeks ago. So, so the Israelis, I think, have a fair bit of sympathy and, and the world shares their outrage. But the outrage of equally innocent, in my mind, and not in the mind of everybody, but in my mind, equally innocent civilians who are likely to be killed in Gaza is just going to change the balance. You know, when we think about the concert or the rave that was attacked on Saturday, you know, I read today that former retired Israeli general Israel Zinn, who 
went there, jumped into his Audi and drove down the highway from Tel Aviv to get there with his pistol and fought off a bunch of terrorists. Public opinion in Israel, pretty united. How long do you think it stays united? It depends a lot on what happens. It depends on how Prime Minister Netanyahu operates with his war cabinet, with his political and security cabinet. You know, there, there seems to be an effort by setting up this war cabinet to marginalize some of the, the more right-wing voices in his government and give him more space. How he handles that, do the, the, is there a sense that he is moving to the center or a sense that he's not listening to anybody? I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't know what some of the uh, some of the more right-wing uh, ministers are, are going to think about how this war is being prosecuted. And I don't know how some of the more moderate people are going to feel about how the war is being prosecuted. So I, I think that's that's hard to say. The other thing, of course, is as we move from the most active war fighting, the voices for accountability are going to raise. And the issues of accountability for how they got to this point for Israel are profound. Israel is, as you know, as well as anybody, this is a no BS society and people put it all on the table. And the fact is, they were very confident they understood it. And there's a certain arrogance in the Israeli security establishment. Sure. And that arrogance, I think, was shown up by Hamas. So you're going to have, in many ways, Israel is going to have to be prosecuting, if not a ground war, at least some sort of occupation amidst calls for accountability, investigations, really revelations of, of incompetence. And that's going to be hard to sort of manage the, the, the decline in violence at the same time that, you, that politicians can be fighting for their political lives. How that plays out, uh, I think that's going to be very tricky in Israel. John, I want to ask you about the people who live in the south of Israel in places like Ashdod and Ashkelon, Sderot, some of the kibbutzim down there, you know, it's, I've read today in the paper that a senior Israeli official was saying they believe that Hamas purposely attacked on Saturday because they knew this concert was happening and that there was going to be, you know, hundreds of young people there. What is it like living down there so close to the border with Gaza? And do you think Israelis are going to go back and live there? First, I think the guidance much more was the 1973 war, also on a Saturday, also on a religious holiday. It's a nice round number. But if you remember- That's 50 years to 50 the day, years, basically. So it was one day after. So it was yeah. October 6th. Uh, 50 years later, the Egyptian military still has armed forces day on October 6th. It still is remembered as their greatest- military triumph, all they did was they penetrated the border, right? Egypt blasted away the sand berms, the Israelis, the impregnable sand berms, the Israelis had built on the east bank of the Suez Canal, protecting their, their occupation of Sinai. 
Two weeks later, Israeli troops were 100 kilometers outside of Cairo. The Egyptians had to sue for peace. But the issue from an Egyptian perspective is everybody said, you can't penetrate Israel, and we just did. I think Hamas was hoping that they could just demonstrate that they could penetrate, demonstrate that, that Israel was actually a lot more vulnerable. I think they were successful not only beyond their wildest dreams, but I think they actually created a lot of problems for themselves. The idea of 150 hostages, I don't think they set up to take 150 hostages. And in many ways, 150 hostages is less useful than a handful of hostages. Uh, How so? It's hard to negotiate for 150 hostages. With five, with five hostages, it's easy to negotiate for five hostages. And you can imagine people getting tremendous things in exchange. 150, it's a hostage problem and people just move ahead. So I think they were more successful than they intended, more successful than for their own good. But, you know, there's there's another side to this. You know, the, the folks in Gaza feel they're systematically dehumanized. Not only do they have to live in crowded, poor conditions, but in many cases, they can't ever get out. There's nowhere to get out. You can't get if, out on the Egypt, you, Egyptian if, side. You can't get out on the Israel side. But if you want to emigrate, emigrate to where? Nobody wants Gazans. So, you know, Gazans have felt trapped. And there have been times when the Israeli military has moved into Gaza and people from the south have sort of perched on the hills and watch the military activity from afar. There's sort of been a sense of, you know, the, the barrier is so high that those people, they could never, they could never get out. There was a, a level of... So when you're living there, as an Israeli, you feel like there's enough of a barrier that what's going on in Gaza isn't going to impact you. My understanding is that... that most Israelis said, but that's why there's a fence around Gaza. It's not our problem. And, you know, every time the Gazans get a little uppity, the Israeli military teaches them a lesson and it stops. And as you know, I'm sure you've heard as much as I have, Israeli security folks would talk about mowing the grass. It's unpleasant, but periodically you just have to do it. And you go in, you kill a bunch of Palestinians, and then they learn their place again. That was the Israeli view. And the Israeli view is it's not pleasant, but it's it's the only way to deal with those people. And that view has been utterly shattered. I think shattered. that view has been shattered. I don't know what the new view is going to be. And this is, it seems to me, where we really have to start putting a lot more attention now because the victors and vanquished in this are not going to be determined on the battlefield. They're going to be determined in what comes after. What's the political order that prevails in Gaza? Is there some sort of alternative leadership? Can the Palestinian Authority reassert some sort of legitimacy and control? Is there space for Arab states to play a constructive role? After all, they share a lot of the same strategic orientations that the Israelis do, and they're sympathetic to the Israeli concerns. But the, the challenge of it right, is you can't impose solutions on Gaza. You can't have a sort of Arab wrapping around an Israeli solution. There has to be a solution that, that Gazans feel belongs to them in some way. The U.S. ability to create governments that, that people feel they own is not very good. We saw it in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
I'm not sure the Israelis have been great at it. But to me, that's that's really the the necessity to focus on. It, it's We can certainly talk, and there are people who are much more knowledgeable than me about how the next several weeks or months of military activity will unfold. There will be a lot of dead people, be a lot of destroyed infrastructure. But what really is going to matter is, okay, and then what? And the and then what, and who's on board, and how can Israelis get over the anger and, frankly, hatred that has been aroused by the last six days of fighting to say, but we have to find some sort of solution to this. There, there could be a silver lining in this. One of the things I was concerned about in the last several years, frankly, was that Israelis were so comfortable with the status quo that it was hard for me to imagine there could be any movement on Palestinian things. I said, I, I'm afraid that there may have to be a cycle of violence where people say, you know, actually that's not a solution and we need to look for a solution. Because people are looking for a solution doesn't mean they'll find one. And there are some problems that can't be solved. But to my mind, Israelis have gotten too comfortable with the idea that this never has to be solved. And that's fine. And to me, the, the message of the last week is that Gazans don't have a lot of power, but they can assert a no vote. And this was not, I don't think about Saudi, Israeli uh, normalization. I think it was about Arab normalization in general with the Israelis, with the Abraham Accords, with a sense of we're just going to lock up Gaza and throw away the key and we don't have to worry about them and we'll just give them a few jobs and we know how to play them and it'll be fine. And this is not only Hamas, but I think a lot of people in Gaza are saying it's not fine. And the question is, how do you go from that to something that's sustainable, to something that lets Palestinians have hopes for a better life, lets Israelis have hopes for a better life? I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it has to be different from the situation that was prevailing last week. You know, I think a lot of Israelis would say right now, it's almost impossible to think about a solution to any of these problems when this is so viscerally egregious and so heartbreaking. I just wonder how, is this really a, a, an existential, I mean, this is beyond a threat. This is a threat to Israel's very existence, right? Isn't the, it? But the danger is that you take the, the 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 absolutely heinous crimes of last weekend and say that's what two million Palestinians in Gaza are about, and therefore we have to punish them even more. We have to dehumanize them even more. There's no dealing with them. That's certainly one one view, and I think some Israelis take that view. I just think. The most heinous things don't represent the majority or, or even a large segment of folks in Gaza. I think there, there are people who do 
heinous things who need to be punished or people who condone heinous things who can turn away from condoning heinous things. I think we have to think, where do you want to be in three to five years? And the time to think about where you want to be in three to five years is now. And part of that has to be thinking about what is the the political organization of this space going to be? Israel doesn't want to reoccupy it for good reason. So let's start planting the seeds for an alternative. So So two questions. One, do you worry that Israel is going to cease to exist? That's one. The second is, if Israel won't occupy, what do you think could happen in its place? Do you think there's a coalition of Arab states that can work and, and yeah, I, police I, it? I can imagine some sort of, of Arab-endorsed government with some some sort of authority that that has some homegrown elements that has legitimacy that, that you can build over time that, that can be there. I'll tell you— and, and let me go out on a limb here. I don't think Israel is going to cease to exist. I think Israel may cease to exist in its current form. Meaning what? Meaning that the the sort of folks who embrace the liberal values of the West, who were the founders of the state of Israel, their descendants are either going to leave, and many Israelis can leave if they want to, and many Israelis have begun to leave. Um, And what you'll have is you'll have a a state which arguably is more Jewish, much less liberal, has much less in common with the – states that have supported Israel through the years. And it will represent a majority of Israelis in the country, but it'll have a different relationship with democratic governments, with international jury. It'll be a, a state which, you know, in, in many ways openly embraces treating people profoundly differently because of religion and citizenship. And there are countries in the world with which the United States has relations like that. Gulf states, for example, have essentially three categories of, of people. They're, they're the migrant workers, and they're the Western expats, and then they're citizens of the state. And I think our sense is that's not really a model we can be comfortable with. Does Israel really want to have uh, as you can be Jewish or you can be Muslim or Christian or you can be uh, West Bank Arab or you can be Gaza Arab or, 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 and everybody has different rules and you're not protected by law unless you're in the right category. I think that's a dangerous direction for Israel to go, because I think Israel becomes a different place in that circumstance. So that's one example of what people are talking about as being a paradigm shift in Israel. 
Another example is is that you know Israel doubles down on its westernism, its its democracy, its its you know its freedom. I guess we'll have to see. And that's again, I think that's why it's important to think through where they're trying to get. And I understand all the anger, and I understand the 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 repulsion at what happened. But a, I, I just don't think that represents everybody and b you have to not just let the worst people characterize the whole society you have to think about what are the possibilities in the society europe recovered from world war ii not because it killed all the people who did all the atrocities in world war ii it's because europe managed to get through world war ii and i think this really could be an opportunity not only for israel to fundamentally change the Palestinian-Israeli equation, but for Israel to fundamentally change its role in the region. As I say, the Arab governments are profoundly sympathetic to the Israeli strategic worldview. That's an opportunity to build on. And if you can build it into uh, rights, dignity, livelihoods for Palestinians, it can provide a, a really hopeful pathway to a better life, not just for Palestinians, but for Israelis as well. John, thank you so much for your insights today. This is incredibly helpful. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 